Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. Trying to keep it together as I move towards this special that I tape a week from today in New York City. I believe we moved most of the tickets. My show's at the Orange Peel in Asheville, North Carolina. Tomorrow night are sold out. There's definitely tickets for Nashville, uh, at the James K. Polk Center on Saturday. There's probably some good seats there. My HBO special taping, as I said, at Town Hall, New York City, on Thursday, December 8th. I think there might be two tickets left for the second show. I don't know. You can go to wtfpod.com slash tour for all the uh, dates and ticket info. Before I go on rambling, James Gray is on the show today. He's a writer and director who first got noticed with the movie Little Odessa back in the 90s. He made the films Ad Astra, The Lost City of Z, We Own the Night, among others. His latest movie is Armageddon Time. I talked to uh, Jeremy Strong about it a few weeks ago, and uh, we, have a, we have a nice talk. I was nervous at first, uh, but we're two uh, frequencies of the same type of Jew. So... I don't know, you guys. I, I just spent the day. I, I'm, I'm ready. You know, I got to get my house sitters set up. I've got to, uh, you know, I've got to change all my litter boxes. I've got to uh, start projecting that one of my cats is sick. I've got to start worrying about, I've got these fucking carpenter ants. They're not hurting anybody, but I'm tired of seeing them. I'm tired of watching the ant parade along the ceiling of my bathroom. I don't know why they can't be gotten rid of. But it's a, it's a bit of a nuisance, a bit of an annoying thing to just sort of realize I'm cohabitating with all kinds of bugs and things. Cats, bugs, fleas. Cats got fleas somehow. Had to deflea them. I imagine the fleas are in the house. Now I got the ants. It's because I leave. Yeah, it doesn't matter, man. I leave. I don't have a floppy door for the cats to go in and out of to their catio. So I kind of leave it kind of open. Got moths in my closet. They've eaten some fairly prime Pendletons. Hope they're happy. I hope that that's some quality wool feasting. But look, this is the way it goes. The bugs are going to get us all. That's this just the way it goes. Maybe this is just a way of adapting to it. Got fleas, carpenter ants, moths in the closet. There was a swarm of bees the other day on my porch. I don't know what they wanted. I feel like it's all an indicator. I had a tree full of parrots uh, three days ago. 
just the Glendale parrots, Pasadena parrots, whatever you want to call them, these green parrots that fly around Los Angeles were all just hanging out in my tree. Is it a sign of something? I got a lot of birds going on. There's a lot of bird action, a lot of squirrel action, possum action. I think there's a couple skunks around. I do not know what happened to the rest of Charlie Beans' family. All right, so I mentioned to you that James Gray is here, and um, it's interesting, the hyper-awareness of uh, Jewishness now as a Jew because of the heightened anti-Semitism. As a Jew, you become hyper-aware of the Jewness of you. And if you're like me, you kind of want to kind of hit the bell a little bit. What else are we supposed to do? Just uh, uh, diminish ourselves? Try to pass? Look, I'm sorry on some level, but not really, that for thousands of years, because of being marginalized and sort of uh, pushed around, that the Jews have figured out a way to adapt and succeed in almost every situation uh, but not just to succeed, uh, excel to to levels that that people have a hard time wrapping their brain around. And it seems that most of the anti-Semitism that I understand or that I see, if you break it down, it's just it's just jealousy. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to accept that a small minority of people that have always been a minority in the global population have done so many fucking amazing things and made so many fucking amazing contributions to culture, science, uh, art, uh, business. It's just it's it's daunting. I know for for regular people, for for non-Jews to really take that in. So if you want to believe in big conspiracies, the Jews run the world, not really true. The Jews run show business, not true. Easy, easy tropes. I mean, they work in these uh, in these areas. They work in, in world running. Jews work in show business. Hollywood was built by a handful of Jews who then manufactured the American dream and defined it for non-Jews everywhere so they could live in it. Yeah, another adaptation. Most of the fictions that sort of were were used to base the American dream on white picket fences and aw shucksness was uh, put out there in early films and movies over and over again by the Jews of Hollywood. They were like, here's the world we invented for you. Uh, can we live in it, please? We've, we've made it. Can we live in it? So, yeah, I get it. I understand that uh, most anti-Semitism comes from jealousy. I do not know where the black community gets off on in terms of the type of anti-Semitism they have. There was a time where progressive socialist Jews marched with the voting rights activists uh, during the civil rights movement. Uh, Jews died with uh, uh, African-Americans during the civil rights movement. They were aligned. They were fighting the same fight uh, for human rights, for uh, workers' rights, for uh, civil rights. And at some point, the paradigm shifted. At some point, people like Farrakhan introduced this uh, Zionist-occupied government business, this old anti-Semitic, uh, the elders of Zion, all that other shit, and just sort of started to pollute the brains. I'm not saying that slumlords and certain people within the music business uh, did us much good either. But uh, look, man, look, woman. You know, we're just trying to get by like everybody else. What are we supposed to do? Apologize for our amazingness? The Jews, I'm not even talking about myself. I'm just a, a regular, average, working Jew. I'm not, I'm not a, a genius. 
I didn't create uh, any scientific breakthroughs or make any amazing paintings or uh, produce any profound music. I'm just a guy. I'm just a Jew guy moving through a world that seems frighteningly anti-Jew right now. But again, I understand your resentment. I understand your jealousy. And it is hard to accept just how amazing Jews are. Um, especially in this time where everyone's looking to blame somebody for something. God forbid you just acknowledge that the fucking game is rigged and all this infighting amongst us is uh, just a distraction as the world ends and the people who are amassing all the money are amassing it. And I would say most of them at this point, not Jews. So James Gray is an interesting guy, smart guy, a great director. His new movie, Armageddon Time, very Jewy, but good. I don't need to qualify that. It's about his life. It's playing in theaters and available to rent on video on demand platforms. And uh, we had a nice talk uh, for you people that are uncomfortable with uh, Jewish content or Jews talking or Jews mentioning that they're Jewish. Uh, this might be triggering. So there's a trigger warning for anti-Semites. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. I, I find what's happening with me in the stones right now is kind of odd. Like I've loved him my whole life, but like I keep finding more depth to it somehow. And, and I kind of kind of uh, recontextualize them all the time. Right. It's a weird thing. Like I've gotten deeper into listening to Keith. As he gets older, and I saw them, it's funny, because I saw them in uh, Florida in their last American show on this last tour at the Hard Rock, small for them. like oh, Without hours. Charlie. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I saw them with Charlie many years ago in San Diego, but I just got free tickets. I was down there because I was visiting my mother, right. so I reached out to their publicist. I said, can I go? And I went with my brother, and uh, people were saying- saying uh you know they'd ask me like was it great and i'm like no no it's not great but it's them right they're doing it right you know and even keith like if he can he like launch it like he'll cock you know for a chord and you're happy he hits the chord it's not a matter of the song anymore no, of course <laughs> yeah they're sort of all vibe in a way what's your favorite period of theirs well, the, what I listen to the most lately, you know, they just released the uh, El Combo 
uh, live record. Yeah. Did you get it? No, I haven't yet, but I know about it. Yeah. Uh, it's, is it fantastic? Yeah. Well, it's like that one, the the one side, the two sides on uh, Love You Live. Or yep. sh- it's it's that concert, those series of shows. Yeah. And that was pretty good. I tend to listen to, I listen to Yaya's a lot. It's incredible. It is, man. It's incredible. And people don't really know that record anymore. I don't know why. It's, in fact, I think that's the best version of Sympathy for the Devil they ever did. Pretty great. Yeah. And uh, Midnight Rambler, too. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, but that, isn't that, that's, uh, that's Mick, isn't yeah, it? Mick, Mick Taylor, Taylor is yeah. playing on that, yeah. I had a revelation on that record where, where I was like, oh my God, this whole endeavor would completely fall apart without, uh, without Charlie and Bill. Yeah. Completely fall apart. Like that record, that rhythm section is so fucking tight. Yeah, and in fact, yeah, he's sort of the drummer's drummer, right? I Charlie guess so. Watts. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's a very strange drummer, that sort of lifting up of his arm. Yeah. Yep. Also drums with a traditional jazz, yeah. not a match grip like Ringo yeah. used to. A very weird, great group. Yeah, all rhythm, by the way. You're quite right. I can't believe we're talking about the Stones. It's the best. It's the best. I mean, I, it, they're one of the only bands that I listen to fairly regularly, and for some reason I've been listening to uh, Talking Heads again. Uh, pretty regularly. My son loves them. It's so weird you would say that. I haven't listened to them in 30 years, I confess. Mm. I used to love them. I'm sorry. I'm talking uh, t- way too much what about this stuff to you. Why? Well, what I just because, can talk about movies? Well, you can talk about anything you want to talk about. <laughs> but I have I, the Stones for me are, uh, I put them solidly, uh, and you may be offended by this, but I put them solidly at number three. Uh, behind? It's impossible for me to put anyone other than the Beatles at number one. Yeah, I get it. Uh, uh, it just... The scope and the depth of the work is yeah. insane. Yeah, it's kind of wild. It's kind of, you know, do you watch that doc? Of course. What I mean, what is that? Well, I, the Get Back creation, which I'm sure you uh, saw in the first two hours. I talked to Jackson about it. It's it's astonishing. What, what's astonishing about it is they're just guys, and, you know, they're just kind of like guys you might even know. Yeah. But as soon as they all pick up their instruments without talking or, or knowing anything, they they make they make magic it's, like it's insane almost involuntarily. You know, uh, my son who is a bass player, he said to me, he said, you know, he loves Paul yeah. Paul's bass playing, and he said to me, he said, Dad, uh, you know, wh- how did they sign their record contract stuff? He wanted me to tell him about the history. Yeah. So they Decca Records mm. had turned them down, and on YouTube they're yeah. available. So the Decca session. So I said, well, let's listen to it. So we start listening to it, and they're not good. Yeah. But I realize it's John, Paul, George, and Pete. Oh, really? And the rhythm section is poor. Is that true? Oh, yeah. And so you needed Ringo. Right. There's some weird, to your point, there's some kind of alchemic thing that happens with those four people playing together. Right. And it's like you can't even believe it. The The Jackson thing, with them... Playing with with Paul just sitting down and going trying to do get back yeah instantly coming up with that song is nuts yeah well I saw there's a moment in uh, Above Us Only Sky yeah where I really saw that more more you know, before the get back thing there's a moment where you know John has George come over to play guitar and something right on Imagine yeah yeah the album yeah on the album right that's yeah. what they're recording and yeah. in the session. You know, there, there's all these musicians in the room, and George is sitting there, and, and John's at the piano, and, you know, George is holding his guitar, and John just, like, hits a couple things at the piano, and George looks at him, and there's this moment, and then George just hits a riff, and there's that. You know, there's a, nothing Absolutely. is said, and it was like, oh, my God. Absolutely. That's the whole thing. Yeah, and in fact, when apparently uh, John doing his solo records, particularly uh, starting over toward the end. Yeah. He kept saying to uh, Andy Newmark, who was a very good drummer and drummed yeah. with Sly and the Family Stone, he kept saying, no, 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 do it like this, like Ringo. 
<laughs> you know, ten, ten years after they broke up, uh, still it's asking so for Ringo. Sad, isn't it? It's sad. I mean, that is very disturbing. You, your life sort of peaks at twenty three, twenty four. It's crazy. There, there. Was, I think age was. Uh, it happened differently then. Well, certainly, I mean, Orson Welles, right? 20, 26 years I can't old. even imagine it. I mean, I, don't, I can't imagine a, a 26-year-old now doing that. Well, well, he had a huge support system, Orson But even Welles. then, I mean, when you look at 20 people, you know, people in their 20s, it's sort of like, you, you know, or even me in my 20s, I thought I was something, but I don't think I was anything. Yeah, I actually made my first film at 23, and I was a moron. I did not know anything. Was what, Little Odessa? Yeah, I was very young, and I, if, I, if I knew how little... I knew I yeah. would never have hired me. Really? Yeah. But I mean, what did were you out of just out of film school, or what did you do? Well, I was out of film school. I'd made a, a short film, yeah. which I'm sure is wretched. Yeah. And uh, uh, for some reason, well, I made. You've never very, seen it. I I, I have. So I've, <laughs> I've made the mistake of watching. In fact, I had a very awful moment where yeah. they showed that film along with David Lynch's short film in his uh, time at AFI. And Robert Zemeckis' mind was by far the worst, yeah. which was sobering. But I made a very smart decision in right. the midst of awfulness, yeah. which was that I used Bo Diddley and Billie Holiday songs in the movie instead of getting, you know, friends on a Casio tone to do sure, the score. Sure, sure. So the movie all of a sudden seemed like it was professional. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so I got an agent and they yeah. hired me to do a movie and yeah. that was all madness. Thank, thanks to Bo Diddley. Thanks to Bo, Bo Diddley and Billie Holiday. <laughs> which, which Bo Diddley song? I used Bo Diddley and also 500% more man. Yeah, that's good. It's spectacular. Yeah. Made me seem like a pro. That's the best beat. Yeah. Who turned you on to Bo Diddley? I have a strange one. You ever see the movie Fritz the Cat, the animated film? Yeah, maybe a million years ago. Yeah, Ralph Bakshi uses the entire song in the movie. Really? I must have been 11 or 12. I saw it quite by accident. How did you end up at Fritz the Cat? How old are you? Well, you're a little younger than me. So, like, how did you end up at Fritz the Cat? Uh, you know, you you may know about this, but in yeah. the early 80s, there was a huge network of revival houses all around New York City, right? which was fantastic. They yeah. had a theater called The Thalia, which was uptown. Yeah. It was a terrible, I mean, it was a dump, but, yeah. but it was it showed amazing films. And downtown, there was the Bleecker Street Bleaker Cinema. Bleecker Street Cinema, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Theater 80, these things. Yeah. And there was a double feature of Ralph Bakshi movies, Fritz the Wizards? Cat and Heavy Traffic. Oh, and Heavy Traffic. And I went. Yeah. And I was maybe 12. I didn't know what I was going to watch. But you were coming in from the island. I was coming from Queens, where I where I grew up. So where, yeah, I saw I saw the new movie. I be, so I always wondered that about people in like in Queens and stuff because there is a like as I do comedy, I just got you know I've been on the road a lot and you know you get a, a little out on the island, not Queens, but a little further out, and people don't go to the city. I mean, there's a type of person that's going to go, and then there's a type of person that just like why. You're completely right. In fact, my uncle who had the fantastically poetic name of Seymour. Yeah. He used to say, I said, well, uh, you're, going to, uh, you're going to New York, he would say to me. He'd say, you're going to Manhattan? I'd say, yeah. He'd say, I have problems with the city. <laughs> and I never knew what that meant. I have problems with the city. <laughs> yeah. And finally, uh, a few years ago, I asked my cousin, I said, well, what did your dad mean by that? He said, I think he meant he had problems with the parking. Yeah. <laughs> but I, as, I loved it. I mean, to me, it was like Eden. You know, I would take the train in and uh, right. the E or the F. And 15 minutes later, I'd be in the center of Manhattan. And they let us do that. Like, I'm, like I said, I'm like I'm five or six years older than you, but I'd go, my family's from Jersey. But, and, but we, I, didn't live, I lived there most of my life. I lived in Albuquerque. You know, we, we, my family, but I'd go back there, visit my grandmother in Jersey. And she put us, 14 years old, they put us on the bus. 
and just go to Port Authority and wander around Times Square. Yeah, it's it's actual madness because I have three children now, 17, 15, and 13, and I would never let them do that. I mean, the 17-year-old, yes, but not the 13-year-old. I was 10 riding the New York subways by myself. 1981? This No, this would have been 79 I started. Right. Not a great time. Horrendous. <laughs> the thing is, you know, also, people forget yeah. what the trains physically looked like. Right. It was filthy. The, yeah. the trains were covered with graffiti. Yeah. It was like a dungeon, you yeah. know? Right. And so you would go down in there. It felt dim and dark. There's actually an excellent book by a photographer named Bruce Davidson chronicling that period of the New York subways. It's called Subway. Yeah. Who would have thunk it? And it his pictures are great. And it's that time period exactly. And I, I loved it. It felt dangerous and, and exciting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, why wouldn't it? Yeah. But you, but, but the odd thing is, is that you felt safe enough because there was people all around. Yes, that's true. I never, uh, the funny thing is one time I remember, uh, this was maybe a couple of years later, I might have been 12, and I took the train home at around 1.30 yeah. in the morning. Yeah. Oh, Packed. yeah. Packed. At 12? Packed. Yeah. Yeah. And people, like the weird thing I, I, I notice about New York, and, and I think it's true, and I think that if you've lived in New York, you've spent time in New York, there, there, it, it actually gives you hope in people. Because despite all the you know, rough types, if, yes. some, if some shit goes down in the subway or on the street, people will be there to help quickly. I, I completely agree. There's a very funny and very famous cartoon or comic from the New Yorker magazine yeah. and has an, a Calif an LA person and a New York person yeah. walking their dogs towards each other. Yeah. And the thought balloon of the New, the, the New Yorker is saying, go fuck yourself. And yeah. the thought balloon is, have a nice day. And right. the, a Californian is saying, have a nice day. And his thought balloon is, go fuck yourself. <laughs> That's New York for me. <laughs> I love them. I love New Yorkers. Do you live there now? No, I live here. I've lived here permanently, uh, I, off and on. And I've now lived here permanently since 2012. Uh, I came yeah. back here after I made a film called The Immigrant, which was a particularly difficult experience uh, in the release of the film. Uh, dealing with a certain person named Harvey Weinstein, and we we had, yeah. my wife and I had just had enough. Yeah, of New York. Yeah, because it it conjured bad memories, you know, of like meetings with the guy going, "I hate your work, and yeah. I'm going to destroy you," and all this crap. He said that to you. He said, "Yeah, that and versions of that over and over again." But what what was that based on? He hated the work. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty simple. Uh, Harvey was a very uh, mercenary person. Where was he from? Is he like a- Queens, I'm so sorry that, to say, well, very close by. Well, that, well, see, that's what it feels like to me. It's like you represented something. Yeah, I was kind of like, I, I, maybe maybe if I actually ever touched him, we both might burst into flames or something. Right. He, he was a, he it was, I mean, he's still with us, but he, he was a very, he was, a, he was like the untamed id or something, you know? And in a way, if you put him in a movie and you cast him as the heavy, it would be like, no, no, you can't do that because that's typecasting. Right. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? yeah. He looked like the kingpin out of the yeah. Spider-Man comics. Well, what, what were you dealing with? He didn't do any of your movies? You just met he with him? He did two. He did he two did of my films. Right. The first one I got into myself. The second one- The yards he, he did? He did the yards. He financed that. And that was a pretty nightmarish experience. And then- I Why? Made well, because, you know, he takes the film, he, he, he says, well, here's what you got to do. You got to have a happy ending and you have to have this and you have oh, to yeah. have that. He was a frustrated director, by right. the way. He had made a film, believe it or not, called Playing for Keeps. Yeah. Not, there was one that came later in like the 2000s, but he, his is in the mid-80s. 
you cannot see it. Basically, he got all the copies of it eradicated. <laughs> yeah. We tried and to do that with a lot of things. He tried, yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, I have filmmakers to this day calling me up in tears saying, how did you get your film out? you know, from him because he shelved so many movies. Huh. It's crazy. People but you got the yards through? I got the yards through and then I uh, went off and made some other pictures. And then when I did The Immigrant, he bought it. Yeah. And I didn't know he bought it. Right. And I got deeply upset because my reaction was, well, that guy is going to put it on a shelf somewhere in lower Manhattan. And he tried to do it and I got into huge fights and he, he was crazy. He, he called me up one day. He said, I remember he said, I, I have been working on your movie since two o'clock in the morning i said uh, what he was mad that some woman left well he said that he, he scared said, away exactly that he, he said, raped he, so he, i can't what do you don't make me laugh at this it was a horrible story yeah but he said he said um he said uh, my my daughter was born today i said oh congratulations don't congratulate me i've been in here working on your movie getting your movie into better shape i said well, I, I think you should go home and be with your wife. He goes, well, I'm doing this for you. I said, you're not doing this for me. You're doing it so that you can recut my movie. I didn't ask you to. I had final cut. He couldn't do anything about it. It sat on a shelf for a year. Then finally it got released. That's crazy. Yeah. But so that's he, how you dealt with him. But did you know any of the other shit that was going on? None. Uh. I mean, I, I, and in fact, you know, I know that uh, Quentin Tarantino spoken publicly about it a lot. Yeah. He may have had more of a hint of it than I did because uh, he was with Mira Servino. Yeah. I never had any exposure to that sort of thing. Now, when on the yards, you work with James Kahn, another New York guy. That's how, right. How great was that? Well, I, I got along fantastically well with him. Why wouldn't you? Except yeah. you're just from a different borough. Yeah. Well, no, actually, he was from Queens as well. He was oh, from right. Sunnyside, Queens. His father's he, a butcher. His I, father was a butcher. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, I talked to him and it's like, you know, he's a real, you know, he's a piece of work, man. He's relentless. Jimmy was, he had a kind of obsession with his own uh, machismo in a way. and No kidding. Yeah, and he, but, he, but he, he was the one who really gravitated towards, you know, uh, how should we put this, the less savory characters that were around on The Godfather, and he befriended a lot of them. I absolutely adored him, and I thought he was an underrated actor. Uh, was he underrated? He, absolutely. I think like, you know, when I talked to him, I went into it, I did a deep dive on him, you know, and I, I interviewed his son years ago, Scott. A, a fantastic guy, by yeah, the way. Yeah, great guy. But like, you know, it wasn't just gangsters he liked. He was hanging out with the Mossad. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he he had a thing. I'm telling you, he was like- But wasn't he that thing? He seemed to me that like, you know, he, see, I have this theory about, you know, you, you have, you have uh, you know, you have peasant Jews- you know, who were built to, to lift things and move things. And then you have like, you know, uh, 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 mathematic Jews, you know, like symphony Jews. Right, like Oppenheimer or yeah, something. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. So, you know, you got these two camps. And I always thought that he was like you know, one of the, you know, alpha Jews. He was definitely, well, you know, there's a book on it. It's called Tough Jews. Yeah, yeah, I've seen he, that. He was a tough Jew. Yeah. And he, he but he, and he liked What's he that guy's it. name? Alsander? What's the guy who wrote that? Oh, uh, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, yeah. You I read it, remember. though? No, I have not read it. It's I a good know cover. About yeah. <laughs> it's a couple of guys in a paddy wagon, right? Well, I didn't, I didn't read it because it's like, in some ways, sort of partly my life story. My my family was sort of split between the tough Jews yeah. and the, you know, the Edward Jews. Teller Jews, the math <laughs> Jews. Yeah. We had both sides. My father was the tough Jew side. Was he? Oh, absolutely. Because like in the movie, he's, you know, Jeremy plays him. He's definitely emotionally erratic. I would say that that is incredibly accurate to who my father was, what yeah. Jeremy Strong is doing. But yeah. my father's father was a, 
a tough, tough plumber yeah. who came over from Russia, actually Ukraine, yeah. 1923, and he was not going to take any shit. Right. I mean, he was a brutal and bruising guy. Didn't speak any English. Yeah. Would sit on the couch, would come over, he, he would sit on the couch and cry. Yeah. About I'd what? Say, I'd say, well, why are you crying, Grandpa? Yeah. Your grandfather is saying he's crying because he misses the old country. Yeah. Said, what the hell are you missing? They wanted to chop your head off. Yeah, right. Weird, so he, right? Yeah, he, but he was a, he was also famously very physically strong. He'd like carry bathtubs by himself up four flights of a walk-up. That's why my grandfather had a hardware store and then an appliance store. Yeah. yeah. He had, he had, my, my grandfather had a plumbing place in, in, in Bed-Stuy. Yeah. Yeah, but Ukraine too. I'm part of Ukraine. Where do you know where? Galicia. Oh, Galicia. Yeah, that's yeah. that's my family as well. No shit. Yeah, I got Galicia on one side, and yeah. I got uh, Belarus and Pela settlement on the other side. This sounds extremely familiar. Yeah. I of will course. tell you. Of course, we're all uh, yeah. And then there's some weird. You know, there was uh, my my father's maternal grandfather or great grandfather was down in uh, the Carolinas when they you know he, they all landed in Jersey on the shore, but then after the Civil War, you know, they wanted white men to come down there. Uh, to start businesses so the entire state wouldn't uh, become a black state. I think, wow. I don't know if it was North, it was, I think it was South Carolina. So he was down there opening grocery stores and he was, I think, bipolar, which is, we explained my father. Was How your you father bipolar? I, because, I of, because of finding your roots. But the bipolar part they know? Well, no, but he, well, he was erratic. There was newspaper articles. He fought with his son about property. He, he ended up, uh, you God. know, going to court. So, and my dad's like uh, got the, the thing, the manic thing. Well, I don't. My father was never diagnosed with anything like that. Although he was certainly a strange guy. I mean, he he had, you know, love and violence in equal measure. Can you? But you were able to identify that as love. You know, as a kid, if it's your only reality, of course, right? I mean, you don't have another alternate, like like Mike Brady dad to compare it. Well, to. it's interesting though. You know, like the I get that. You, uh, I get that. I mean, you have to believe that they love you. Of course. But you, then when you grow assumption. up, you're like, why am I a twisted emotional freak? Right. Well, that's, <laughs> but that's, isn't that everybody? I mean, I, who, I don't know. You know, like I read this book that it's called The Fantasy Bind by the, Bond by this guy Firestone. It's a psychologist. And the, and it kind of blew my mind. It was one of these puzzle pieces where he said, when you're a kid, despite whatever your parents are, however crazy or however abusive or whatever it's going on, it doesn't matter. The, the spectrum of it is that, you know, if you feel awkward, uncomfortable or, or, or strange, you know, you, it's not them. Like no matter how they are to you, they're your parents and they're gods. Right. So if you feel fucked up, you're going to blame yourself, install a parent in your head that says you stink and listen to that guy for the rest of your life. Wow. That is so, that's completely true. I know. Oh my God! I, I you just like unlocked more stuff. I've been you know seeing a shrink for thirty years. That's better. That's better than anything I ever heard. You're welcome. Yeah, I mean, I should have paid for you. But you know, I I always feel like with my parents, yeah, um, that was you know sort of my normal, right? But now when I look back at it, you know, what's the old joke that uh, you just want to raise children that are good enough to pay for their own analysis? I I just felt that that was normal and now I look back on it and I'm kind of horrified well I mean you look back on it you, you made a movie of it I had to I, I mean it's interesting because I said to my uh, producer I was like I think he, he made his first movie last <laughs> well that I can't speak to I will tell you that <laughs> if I had made the movie 25 years ago right it would have been a very different picture you know you're, you're you really I think people are 
people change a lot more than they think they do. I think change is underrated. I think I'm very different than I was when I was 23 or 24. Yeah. Aren't you? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think that, you know, you're going with what you know until you realize, like, you know, maybe you've been misled. Yeah, and I also, I have been over the past three or four years particularly thunderstruck by just how little I actually know. And in general, in general, and it's very depressing. I've tried to read everything I can. I've never, of course, read Tough Jews as we just established. Well, but yeah, I'm the same way. I yeah. got a room full of books. Yeah, I, I have I like tons looking of at books. Them. I, <laughs> I, I, I like looking at them too. But at, at some point, you actually have to read them. I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't know a goddamn you can get, thing. You can get, you can get the gist. You, the gist? You no, I to, can't. I mean, no, you have to read the whole book, especially if it's dense. You know what I mean? Like well, what's, two, what's, what's, but I tried cheating my way through what? Moby Dick well, uh, that, many well, years that's ago. That's a novel, yeah. But I mean, like you know, the stuff that you know, the like I can't understand philosophy at all. It's a, it's like reading math to me. I can't, I can't fucking. And I, I, th- I sometimes I feel like, well, when I get older, I'll understand it. I don't. I don't understand. But it. when you say philosophy, what do you mean? Like, like, like I can't read Kant. Oh, I can't right. read Spinoza. No, I mean, that's I wanna, difficult. I want to. I want to know Spinoza. I talked to Jer- Jeremy about Spinoza because he played Spinoza in a play. And, uh, Did you know, he know what he was talking about? A little bit, but you know, you get the gist, you, unless you're going to go back to school. And I tried that once. It didn't work. I see. I've had dreams. I'm never going to do it. You know, it's this chicken shit thing where I say I'm going to. I had dreams of going back to school because I did go to college, but I, I didn't cheat my way through, but I didn't do. Where'd I didn't you go? Really, I went to USC. Which was great because you know, I got scholarship. Yes, I got scholarship money for there, and I really wanted to go to NYU or UCLA. You didn't. Wait, what did you? What did you? What was your major? Oh, I'm undergrad. a complete nerd. I, it's um, I'm a cinema major, but it, my major was actually a double major because I went there as a production major. I got yeah. a scholarship. Like I said, my dream was NYU or UCLA. Right. right. Francis Coppola went to UCLA. Martin Scorsese went to NYU. Those are your guys. That. Those are, those were my guys. Still are in a way. And didn't, you know, I got into NYU, UCLA, I didn't. And I thought, well, do I want to stay in New York? And then I got all this, you know, free scholarship stuff to go to USC, went there, got there, and all of production was technical stuff. It's almost like a trade school. Yeah. So they'd say to you, here's how you load a Bolex camera, 16 millimeter, basically stuff now that is worthless. Yeah. And then there was this other thing called critical studies. And that I thought was great. That was seeing movies, analyzing yeah. them. So I became a double major, and critical studies thing became much more interesting. You got in your mind you're going to be a filmmaker, and yeah, you got and Scorsese I, I was, and Coppola on the brain, which was the only. I was very weird for the rest of my classmates. The rest of my well, I was also a jerk, which is probably abundantly clear to what you. What kind now. of jerk? I was pompous and pretentious, mm. and uh, you know, I was the only New Yorker in the right. class. Yeah, and I did. I I will say I had seen. A lot more movies than anybody else in my class. So as a kid, you're going to the city, you're doing like, I mean, when do you realize you're a film guy? I can tell you exactly what it was. Mm. I saw a double feature at the Carnegie Hall Cinema, which was this really strange art house where you would take an escalator down and they would serve literally cappuccino in the lobby. Uh And I saw a double feature of Apocalypse Now and Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. And I, I... before that, I had seen, you know, Star Wars, the King Kong remake, Superman. Stuff these that was mainstream when you mainstream, were when yeah. you were a kid. You like uh, those? Well, I like Jaws a lot. I still love it. That Jaws is crazy. Why do you say that? It's like it always delivers. 
No matter how many oh, times you've seen it. It's a masterpiece. Well, you know, that was Fidel Castro's favorite movie. Sure. Because he said the mayor, he'll leave the beach open, doesn't matter yeah. how many people get yeah. eaten. You that know, was a role model for him? Yeah. Well, I think he saw it as the evil of capitalism and, you know, oh, right, put, in, right. put in a movie. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So huh. he loved it so for that. You, so I you, still love Jaws, but you, that was a big one for me. You read the cultural criticism of Fidel Castro's uh, film work. He did uh, No, film, I, film I, I'm trying to remember how I knew this about Fidel Castro and Jaws. I can't remember. Well, Jaws was a big a big thing for you because it was so effective and so terrifying. It I, was brilliantly effective. And, and you're uh, by the beach. When was How long did it take for you to go? back in the water um i'm sorry i still don't do that <laughs> Did you my, my children are freaked out they, i showed them you know during lockdown i showed them joe's they yeah. freaked out yeah no and, you can't go i we were visiting i can't remember where the fuck we were down the shore my i have family in uh in monmouth county and i couldn't go in the water and i remember like having i understand seen but you know, it's based on a sort of a real series of events. I want to say 1916, I think, in in off New Jersey, off Atlantic of Atlantic City, mm. there was a prowling shark that kept eating people, and eventually had come across that story huh. and put it into that, fashioned it into a kind of a what he saw as a sort of poor man's Moby Dick. But it's all Spielberg. I mean, he basically channeled it into something ferocious, and it's still an incredibly effective movie. But then I saw, I never forget, I saw Apocalypse Now. Yeah. And, you know, the black screen and, you yeah. know, and I was, I remember thinking, well, what is that? And my world changed. You did some stuff in uh, uh, City of Z. Yeah. These decisions, you know, with the liquor going into the oh, train. Oh, that's right. Well, I ripped that off from David Lean. Oh, okay. Um, where in Peter O'Toole uh, blows out the match and then he cuts to the, you know, the sunrise in the desert. And yeah. I had wanted some of these transitions to to... To echo David Lean's... Because that was the scope of the movie. I was trying to go for that. I mean, who knows? You you, you know, you aim for the stars. What's this? You aim for the stars and sometimes you might hit Dresden, they say. (laughs) But but I I noticed there was another one too. There was the the booze one. Yeah, and there was also the the spear on his wall, which cuts to the bayonet in World War I. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did it a couple of times. You see, that's that's the magic of, uh, of genius, you see. But you see, but what? But you do the reading. Wait, how the hell did you decide on that book? Well, I'm trying to remember now. I was sent the book in very early stages. It had not been published yet. And one of the things I found was very powerful about it was the idea that this guy had had a father who was a drunk and a gambler. Yeah. Had blown not one but two family fortunes. I'm not sure quite how to yeah. do that. And wound up, he was like equerry to the to to Edward the Seventh. Anyway. And he had to make up for his disgraced family name. And I found that very powerful. And I had wanted to try something outside of what you might call the comfort zone. Yeah. And I really did. Right. I mean, well, at that the jungle point, was you're rough. making small movies. I had made small movies and then wound up finding myself in Amazonia, which was, uh, you know, this like wimpy Jewish guy in the middle of Amazonia. It didn't work out for me physically. <laughs> I looked like Moses with a beekeeper's outfit. It was really rough. Uh, I had like, so I remember one point I looked down. I had multiple scorpions all over my legs. That's what, what am I doing here? You know, yeah. like, what is this? And yeah. I, I remember the cinematographer who was one of the great people ever, this guy, Dias Kanji, this delightful and urbane Frenchman, and was standing in the middle of this tributary of the Amazon, uh, the Don Diego River. Yeah. And he's got this thing on his eye and he's looking at the sky 
And I said, Darius, don't you think we should shoot? We're all knee deep in the river. Yeah. And he says, no, the cloud is coming, the cloud. And I said, Darius, I think I see a Cayman and I yeah. think it's in the water. No, but here you got to, don't worry about it yet. I said, no, Darius, there's a Cayman and it's coming towards me. Can we please shoot? I mean, it was this yeah. kind of shoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it took me a while to recover physically from it. It almost killed me, the picture. You think so? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I came back. But didn't you I know went, that going in? No. You were just sort of like, we're going to the Amazon? Well, here's what happened. I had looked at, of course, Apocalypse Now and Werner Herzog and these pictures. Um, and I thought, pretty stupidly, I thought the way this works is if you plan it completely. Yeah. And you don't go to shoot during monsoon season. And you're not insane enough to think you can do X, Y, and Z. You know, if you just keep your ambitions. No. Yeah. Because you're not supposed to be there. Yeah. You're not supposed to bring a hundred people into the middle yeah. of nowhere to, yeah. to, you know, with like yeah. snakes and sure. bats shitting on you and right. monkeys throwing their fe fecal matter at you. I mean, it's insanity. Yeah. Well, we needed that. You needed your Herzog Coppola- I guess I did. Uh, rite of passage. Well, at one point, I remember uh, we were shooting, uh, Charlie Hunnam, who was uh, very prompt every day, didn't show up to the set one day. And I, we were on the river and waiting for the sun to rise. And I hear this little Zodiac comes towards us. And- it's his assistant. Um, Charlie cannot come to set. Um, he is in a helicopter. They're taking him to Barranquilla, which was the closest yeah. major city. Um, he has a bug, and it has crawled in his ear canal, and it is now eating his eardrums, so he has to get it removed. <laughs> what the fuck am I doing here? How'd you feel about the movie? Well, I was proud that I had done it, if that's a nauseating word. I was—I remember feeling some measure of accomplishment about it, and I like the film. I mean, when you ask me, it's like I don't—I I have no distance. It's like I don't know if the movie's any good, but I, I, I like having done it. It's, but you made interesting decisions. Like at some point, you know, in dealing with that kid, his kid, yeah. that, you know, he kind of, you know, what struck me about that film was that, you know, that kid decides— at some point to respect his father. Yeah, that's absolute, That's from the book, and it's an act of such complete madness. But it's all in the context, although uh, it's it's worth sort of thinking about this, World War One yeah. and what World War One did to the world. Right. Which was, it devastated Europe so badly that all of these young people felt, well, if we don't do crazy things, we might just die in a war anyway. You right. Know, because as you know, I'm sure, before World War One, they said, oh, it's going to be sure. two weeks. Yeah. We're going to go and yeah. we'll fight for the country for two weeks and then it's fine. We'll go. Yeah. And then it turned into this like trench thing for four years. Oh, so it was when he was in the hospital that it changed. Yeah, all that changed for the family. I think that the uh, it was a kind of existential crisis all through Europe around 1918, you know. Yeah, I thought you handled that, you know, that, you know, that this, this reunification of these two, you know, out there in the jungle. And then, you know, the turn at the end, but, you know, that, you know, we're going to deliver them to the spirits and the, you know, which is like, sounds nice. Oh, it sounds yeah, lovely, yeah, but yeah. it probably means they ate them. <laughs> there is some evidence that they were eaten. I mean, there, because the, uh, there were these two guys, a father and son team, weirdly echoing Fawcett that yeah. went down to try and find Fawcett's, you know, history. Uh, this was in the late 1990s. Right. And left Sao Paulo and went off to the middle of the jungle and were caught by uh, indigenous peoples, and it, they almost had that happen to them until a Brazilian seaplane came and saved them at the last second. 
But I like that they drugged him up first. That that was apparently part of the ceremony. Almost a kind of ayahuasca. I don't know what but they're doing. It was sort of an act of kindness. Yeah, I suppose so. You make the transition easier. Yeah, that's right. You don't just you know yeah, take yeah. out the knife and fork immediately cut up the you know the calf muscle. Well, I mean, so when when you're a kid and you're having this you know realization that you know helicopters over a black screen has an effect, uh, was so that was basically the moment where you realize like. Oh, there's a lot you can do with this. I just thought it was the greatest art form because yes. it was a combination. You had photography, dance, and how you moved actors. Of course, you have music. Story. Of course, narrative. It's like theater is involved. Did you grow up with the, like, I saw some uh, representation of your home, but I mean, oh, there, yes. was there support of, well, I guess your grandfather was supportive. Well, he he was, and my grandmother was quite pretentious, you know, yeah. and she would say, I'm looking at the Benini statues, you know, this kind of thing. But I, not really. I mean, my parents were terrified at the prospect that I might try to become a filmmaker yeah. or any kind of creative person. I remember my father was, he would say, you have to have a backup, a backup. Sure, of course. And you're going to learn. By the way, the funny thing is, what he advocated yeah. was ridiculously correct. He said, from a financial point of view, yeah. he said, uh, you should go off and uh, you should work. There's a company and it's in right. Seattle yeah. and it's called Microsoft. And if you go to work for them and you're a computer programmer and, you know, and yeah. I, of course, was like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And I'd probably be worth like $8 billion yeah. today. Well, that's, that's interesting. My grandfather says you get a job at the post office. The post office. Yes, because well, you had a pension. I see. Well, my father, my father's barometer for me was health insurance, so oh, yeah. I, I understand completely. <laughs> the post office. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's grim. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. dignity to all work, of course. But well, it's interesting just, about uh, like the 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 sort of disposition of uh, the grandmother and the uh, yeah you know, that 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 first generation of 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 Jewish middle class. They right? were they were strivers for sure, yeah. and, and they had. There was there was a certain equality of uh, uh, pretentiousness yeah. about them, yeah. you know. Yeah. They were sort of like socialists, but you know, the second that you you know right. got some money, that was the end of that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, and then they you know they immediately. I don't even know if they were trying to pass; they were building their version of right. a, of a middle class. I don't think they, there was some attempt to mingle. I remember my parents saying to my grandparents, where it was a lengthy conversation about there's a very nice pool club. <laughs> and it's yeah. in Great Neck. Right. And yeah. we can make go out there and join the pool club if right. we can. Right. Yeah. And there's also tennis, but we don't play tennis. We're going to go swimming. And we joined it. Yeah. And for like no, a month. Was it not a Jewish club? Let's just say this. Yeah. We like hid in the corner under the trees, you know? Uh, we yeah, were like yeah, a different yeah. species entirely. <laughs> yeah. Why'd you call this movie Armageddon Time? Well... I was a huge fan and still am of The Clash. Yeah. And um, I had remembered this song, Armageddon Time, which actually they didn't even write. It was a reggae song originally. But, and I remember Joe Strummer was saying, a lot of people don't get no supper tonight. A lot of people don't get no justice tonight. They were very involved in social justice. Yeah. They were my introduction to the idea of social justice, actually. And in a very unpretentious, kind of brutal, dangerous way, The Clash. And... I remember Ronald Reagan was talking about Armageddon all yeah. the time. Yeah. You know, because the right. threat from the sure. Soviet Union, this yeah. very kind of um, binary battle, yeah. good versus evil, you know, the evil empire. Yeah. And that threat, you remember, the yeah. threat that hung over our heads yeah. that the world could end at any second. Right. So I felt that it was Armageddon, uh, he would propose Armageddon for the world, but it was also Armageddon time for these two boys, 
you know, and what would happen to them and how their lives would go in very different directions. I mean, it's all pretentious nonsense maybe, but that's what I was trying to do. Well, it's, well, it's interesting that the, what you were able to encapsulate just through a family story, you, you know, was kind of, you know, you you were able to 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 get, you know, the senior Trump in there. Well, that's a 100% true. Yeah, I, I, I well, yeah. Well, One yeah. of the weirdest encounters of all time. I regarded him as a kind of evil clown figure. He came to your school. He was the he was on the board of trustees. Is that what was his name? Wasn't Donald Fred? Fred Fred Trump. Yeah, and he would he would parade the halls and he would look very serious and stern. And I, I was my first day. I was carrying an attaché case, which of course is ridiculous. Who told you that? Your grandfather. My father. Your father did. Right. That's an A1 attaché case. You need that for school. You, you, you come to work. I'm a serious student and I have this for my books. You know, that was his <laughs> attitude. So I was walking around with an attaché case. Yeah. It was ridiculous. And yeah. my hair was like cemented down, you know, with dippity do hair yeah. gel. Hey, what are you doing? Yeah. What's your name? Yeah. Uh, James Gray. James Gray. That's your parents' name or your name or what's the name? You know, like this. And he was sending the message. And I immediately knew what was interesting to me, even at age, uh, I was actually 11. Yeah. I, it was very clear to me that I had thought of myself as the king of the hill in public school. I immediately knew I was at the bottom in this new place. And that was a very powerful thing of the sense of humiliation. Yeah. And if I feel that humiliation, I can't imagine what it means for others and, who are less lucky than I was. Your friend in the in the film. Yeah, I mean the African American dev- kid. Devast- What's his devastating. Name? Well, in the movie, it's Johnny. I'm not going to tell you in real life. Yeah, but he in 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 the movie, yeah, he it was devastating for him in a different way. Yeah, the system didn't care about him one bit, and well, the, that was the whole idea of the picture. Yeah, well, I mean, it's at a lot of a lot of levels. That's right. That you can it, it, this idea. You know, it's very easy for us today uh, to point fingers. Uh, I don't know. Something's happened in the culture. I mean, there are many more erudite people on this subject than I am, but. Something around 2013, 2014, something like that, where people started to really, maybe it's a social media thing, but like to moralize. And my attitude is everybody plays a role in the system. Yeah. And you can be the oppressor and the oppressed at the same time. Some people are above you. Some people are below you, you know, and almost part of you likes that to have people below you. Of course. And then, but there's a, a jockeying absolutely for uh for the most oppressed and 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 who has the right to talk that's right so i imagine even coming into depicting your personal experience around this racism that you know you had to be curious about how it would be received i knew that there would be some and by the way i'm i've become very good at avoiding reading anything because Mm. it's not productive and usually you need to wait about 10 years before you get an honest assessment of what the work even means Uh but I did know that the second that you include issues like anti-semitism racism Mm -hmm. so forth and particularly class in the United States that it's gonna some people are gonna like it some people are gonna think it's the worst thing they've ever seen you just know it yeah I guess the, the if they're talking about it it's good that's right well it's the third rail of American life racism you know it's right. like it's like there's something about it the re- the reaction to the film and I knew this would happen in Europe yeah. uh, is completely different because I you go and you talk to yeah, journalists sure. oh, you yeah, can yeah. tell yeah. You know, I just came back from a trip now, what, to Europe well how is it different they don't see the same level of 
how do I put this? This like the, the, the whole vision of I, what we call identity politics is completely different. They see class much more than yeah. They we see don't race. talk about class. No, and, we and, don't. And also the you know it's uh, the experience of blacks is different historically in Europe. Completely different. Yeah. So it's a, it's all it's a discussion of colonialism. That's right. That's right. What I, I but I am one of those people that thinks that class is a major aspect to our identity and that you don't you can't really isolate it's not possible to say um this is an issue of racism divided from away from capitalism itself that right. they're, they're, they're sort of connected obviously and my attitude is you know that the same striving that drove my parents you know who were clearly driven to get to that place in american life which was better you know we're they used to talk about our boat will come in. Our boat, they used to say yeah. it all the time. I think that's the same thing in some way that was connected to having the, their foot metaphorically on Johnny's neck, that they're not separate. And uh, I, I find that uh, in the United States, there's a lot of discussion about how we can get people to be richer and not enough understanding of the systems that are in play that keep things the way they are on purpose. Well, yeah, I mean, it's there. Yeah, I mean, it, but it there's there's actual sort of fascistic elements that are trying to erase the history of systemic racism. Yeah, I, I've been uh, deeply disturbed, but I, I feel like an old curmudgeon. You know, I'm very much a, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm very much a kind of lefty. Yeah. But in the in the tradition sure. of like late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I, think, I think the world has moved to a very strange place now. I never thought, ever including my relationship or connection to the Trumps, I never thought in a million years yeah. that I would be having a discussion with anybody about the possibility of fascism in the United States. Right. And right. here we are. Oh, for sure. It's insane. Yeah, I, well, there's that. And, but it also, it seems like in this movie, before we move away from what we were talking about before, fascism in capitalism and, and also like, you know, what's enabling this stuff cinematically, <laughs> uh, which I'm, I think you probably have some concept of but i mean it seemed like y you were exercising with an o y your own demons around your guilt in terms of the experience that you were put through that's an interesting and excellent question uh, i don't know how much guilt i have i was very young um you remembered it well that's certainly true i would say it haunts me but i don't what else huh. could I have done? I mean, I was. Oh, I get what you're saying. You know Haunting's I mean? different than feeling shame. I, you know, it's, it's. I'm too close to really. I'm too close to it. Obviously, it's my own situation, so I, I don't blame myself. Right. I view it as like a, a kind of depiction of a world which is completely hostile to to children and their what we call agency. You know, you, you can okay. have. You can, cause here's the thing. You can have all the agency in the world. And it's in some way, the kids have agency in the picture. They decide they're going to go off to Florida to Epcot Center, which I know sounds ridiculous as 11 and 12-year-olds it is. But that is a form of agency. Yeah. Take action, run away from home. But the system overwhelms that agency, which is different from having no agency. Do you understand what I yeah. mean? So, so in the picture, I was trying to say that there is a measure of action that we try to take, but the system is very powerful and too powerful for us to act sometimes. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't grow up with that. I don't know why. I, I think my parents were a, a little more hands-off, and I was sort of on my own. 
But that's not a bad thing. No, no, because I was like, I was driven towards creative things and I wanted to, you know, I was aspiring toward, but I had no, there was no real sort of, uh, I, I, I felt my sense of self was nebulous. I bet you have a lot of grit though. I don't know. We, I mean, I've gone through some shit. Right. You, know, you well, build grit later. You know what later? I mean? Later? No. Kinda. You have it in your DNA. Do you? I think so. Well, maybe from your parents letting you go off on your own. I don't know. I, I, maybe I don't know what grit is. I mean, I find that, you know, mostly, you know, I've, I've led a terrified, anxious life where, you know, pretending was essential. And, and at some point, something relaxes. Right. When did that happen for you? Uh, it comes and goes, you know, because my brain will always find something to create dread and anxiety. But as uh, as a creative person or as somebody who knows they, they can do a thing, I mean, it, it probably it was probably about, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I don't know. Wow. That's around sort of comedy wisdom. in my 40s. That's wisdom. Yeah, I, I guess. But like, you know, what good is it? I got no kids. I'm on stage talking to uh, the people, like-minded people who just want to feel better for an hour. Yeah, but yeah. that's not bad. No. How, wh- where does your movies land? How do you find it affects people in general? But well, be- well before I say that, like, it, like I, I would, I would feel remiss. Like in the Lost City of Z, yeah, there was a racial component as well, of course, and and that must have been something compelling to you, given this probably same memory. I had never thought about that. Um, uh, the, you're, you're right, it's in there. It's in a couple of other films I've made. I just see it as a major thread in not just American life, but right. Western civilization. But also your immediate life. I mean, now that you're saying it, yeah, you're right. I never <laughs> thought about that. It's so weird. But you're right. It's a major thread. What well, I'm saying to you yeah, is that- It haunts the hell out of me. It, it's a wound. Yeah. Well, you're probably right. I got plenty of wounds. <laughs> I, I have no shortage of wounds. <laughs> Emotional wounds, physical. How you wounds doing? Too. Yeah. Do you? Yeah, uh, I'm a mess. But Ad Astra, that was that was a good movie. I enjoyed that movie. I'm glad you liked that. So, I, but you go from this sort of David Lean thing to Kubrick. What was that? That was Brad Pitt on wires for 58 days, and uh, you just wanted to string the movie star up. Yeah, I just wanted to. I just wanted to give him some anguish. <laughs> right, you know, living right. living in a harness you for, for three months. Dangle Brad Pitt. Uh, I I had thought that that was. Uh, Sort of what I I was trying to answer all these things where it's like, well, what what's out there? What if we set up a life on Mars? Well, you know, I mean, by the way, Elon Musk still talks about it. he's yeah. want to die on Mars, right? And I thought, he well, the go. Earth is, he should go now. Yeah, I was going to say it'd be great. <laughs> it was an invitation to Mars, stay there forever. Yeah. But 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 I thought, you know, what's wrong with the Earth? Yeah, it's interesting. William Shatner, believe it or not, just yeah. came back. He went through Jeff Bezos' thing. Poor guy, he got all upset. <laughs> yeah, but that he said exactly what I was trying to do with the movie, which yeah. is that you know the Earth is fantastic, and he felt <laughs> a terrible sense of depression looking at the Earth from far yeah. away. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I was trying to do with that movie. I guess yeah. I was trying to embrace the the world in a way, do the anti, and also uh, you know like you know try to you know connect with Dad. Well, of course that's in there, but that was uh, the all of that was my attempt to do a kind of Joseph Campbell like atonement with the father hero. Oh, mythic that's hero interesting. Thing. So, so the intention, the intention started out was, very uh, pretentiously mythic, you know, uh, right, this right, idea. Right. But the you know the Kubrick follow thing, the, follow the Campbell instructions. Well, I didn't quite do the, that. The hero's journey, right? The hero's journey, like yeah. point A, point B. Yeah. But but the 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 Kubrick thing, which and and also the, the Spielberg thing, which is. Uh, kind of a, a belief in aliens. Ah. Um, in Kubrick, it's, of course, a black 
monolith. So you can kind of project anything on that, Oddly, right? Same with Rothko towards the end. Exactly. Go to the Rothko Chapel. It could have been a Rothko. That well, there's, in, there's in, uh, no doubt. There's no doubt that Kubrick looked a ton at modern works of art for the inspiration about that black monolith, mm. and he was public about it. And in fact, oh really? Oh yeah. Um, and it's Makes it's sense. an amazing. Yeah. It's like a work of modernist sculpture or something, right? Sure. That black monolith. But yeah. you can you can say okay, aliens are good, aliens are bad. You don't know what it means. Black black monolith. We don't know what it is. Right. And then Spielberg has the sort of classic uh, cliched, uh, uh, his films are not cliched, but I'm saying the, the, the cliched idea of like the furry alien, as they call it. But he gets around it because the films work as fables. They're, they're sort of like, almost like metaphors. Like E.T. is like, it's like a metaphor about Well, childhood. sure. Like, I mean, I think even with uh, Kasdan, I think, was pretty much doing the Campbell trip to he, build you know that what? universe. No, Luke, I Am Your Father mm. is one of the most genius narrative ideas ever. And when I showed my kids that movie the first time they saw it, mm. the look on their face to see the ogre of all time, Darth Vader, yeah. tell him, yeah. I am your dad, yeah. it was like someone had just like literally devastated their whole worldview forever. Huh. Amazingly powerful. So that it might have been Kaz, and I think it was also Lee Brackett who wrote it with him. I don't know. But yeah, because Spielberg does, you know, he does his, a different thing. It's it's some more. Uh, it's the alien thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but which but he he did find you know Spielberg found beauty in it as a kind of metaphor. But my uh, attempt was to do the opposite of the Kubrick and Spielberg thing, which was to say there are what if there are no aliens? Yeah. This belief in false gods. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, what does yeah. it mean if there's nothing right. out yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of crisis is that for <laughs> what us? If, what if dad doesn't find what he's looking That's for? That's right. He goes out there and there's nothing. That's nice and optimistic, isn't it? I actually think it is optimistic. It, it means people in, matter more. It happened in City of Z, too. That's true. He goes out there and finds nothing. Great. He That's drags great. his son into the pit with him. That's great. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad I'm focusing on the uh, lack of transcendence in life. It's a good, it's a good thing. Jesus. No, I, I, I'm with you. I mean, yeah, because, well, because what's the alternative? You believe in in pixie dust in a way. I, I by the way, those movies are uh, the Coppola. I mean, the uh, Kubrick and uh, uh, sure. Spielberg pictures, the science fiction, are brilliant. But you can't just keep doing it. You know, you have to find another language in the science fiction genre. That's what I was really going for. No, I liked it. Well, I'm glad you did. I mean, you, you, you thought it through. I definitely did that. I had ridiculous dinners with all these astronauts and stuff. I get like great details from <laughs> oh, really? them. I wish I'd used some of them. I tried to fit in as many as I could, but like we were, I remember I would obsess over the Sharpies, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. What, what pen would you use? Oh, really? Well, it would definitely be the Sharpie because yeah, yeah. That you can write with that in space. It doesn't matter about gravity. But I remember one, one astronaut said to me, he said, the interesting thing is that uh, when you come out of the craft... Uh, for about a two-week period, you uh, do smell astonishingly like hamburger meat. Hmm. I was like, I I I'm sorry, what does that mean? Yeah. Nobody really knows the reason you smell like hamburger. <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> so I tried to put that in the movie, and I couldn't. Of course, no place to talk about that. Sure. There were weird details. You want to put one joke in the movie. You don't want to ruin your movie with one hamburger joke. The, no, but there, so were, it, there were jokes I attempted. No, I By the way, nobody laughed. I was like, I was like, good to the space, the space shuttle thing, where she says, "Would you like a, you know, a, a pillow and blanket?" Which of course is meaningless and yeah. no gravity, and nobody laughs. Nothing, I mean, huh? I, yeah, I think the I'm, tone. It was the tone. You're it, up against the tone. It didn't. It didn't work out for me, you know, in, in the heavy space, you know, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the void. Yeah, you know, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't lend a lot of opportunities for hilarity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You like Spielberg? Oh, I think he's brilliant. Did you see the Fableman? I have not. Me neither. When I'm was curious. the last time you saw Munich? I saw it when it came out. Holy shit. You know, that film, I remember th watching it thinking, um, 
it felt almost like he was conjuring some kind of 1970s William Friedkin movie for yeah, the time. Yeah, for fucking, he definitely was. Yeah, and he really, he probably, has, did, he probably made it safer than Friedkin. I talked to Friedkin. He's like, you did? Yeah, he's like, we just, we just drove the cars. We didn't have any security. <laughs> he's like, fuck it. Some I know. He's madman. He told me that. He said, for the French connection. Oh, you talked to him? Yeah, yeah, yeah I love Billy right. Friedkin. He's amazing. And he said he put the camera on the front of the camera, <laughs> oh, the front of the car yeah, on the yeah, bumper. Yeah. And the stuntman was a guy named Bill Hickman. Yeah. Just drove 90 miles an hour through Stillwell Avenue. Yeah. And I thought, what? Yeah. You can't. That's like, that's calamitous. Yeah. We we did this drive, and he drove, and it was the scariest fucking thing. And I, I just was like, wow, okay, well, guess what? I'm glad you're not in prison. Yeah, exactly. He, I'm sure he is, too. The greatest collection, by the way, talk about clusters of talent. Yeah. You had Robert Duvall and, and Gene Hackman yeah. and Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino yeah. and Robert De Niro. They all knew each other. They all yeah. would room. I mean, like yeah. Dustin Hoffman and, and Gene Hackman were roommates. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. Duval, yeah, Duval. I mean, the Duval is incredible. I worked with Duval as well, and he he on what on a movie called We Own the Night. Oh yeah, and he would I would say to him, I'd say, um, all right, we're going to do another take, and he'd go like this: Jimmy, take no prisoners. <laughs> I think, what does that mean? All right, let's do another one. Yeah, but he was he was great. I would I remember I would do like two or three takes, and I'd love them. And then I'd say, do you want to play? Yeah. So yeah, let's play. Let's play. We're going to play. We're going to play. Let's play. And he would go kind of berserk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was fantastic. Did he play? Oh, of course. He would do, he would go, he was a great listener. You yeah. Know, if the actor threw something at yeah. him and Joaquin Phoenix would throw all kinds of weird stuff at him. Yeah. And he would always play off Joaquin in the most brilliant fashion. You like Joaquin. You used him a few. Four times. Yeah, and Wahlberg too. I love times. him. Uh, twice. I love those guys. And, you know, Joaquin is incredibly inventive you're shooting a film with him it feels like live theater or something yeah i watched him work a lot because i had uh you know one scene in the joker uh, yes i know yeah and uh you know but i was on set for a week watching him toil in that role and what what did you what was your impression of joaquin he only acknowledged me as marin once like when i got there it like it was like mark marin and then it was like no then no talking to him he wouldn't talk to anybody except for Todd, who I felt was just sort of like, like almost like a boxing trainer, you know, like, cause he was dug into this thing. He was emaciated. He was in the Joker thing or what he decided to be in that reality. And Todd Phillips would, you know, on, you know in between takes, it, it really looked like, you know, you got this one, Rock. It was just keeping him uh, isolated and wherever he needed to be. So it was no interaction. Yeah. That sounds like Joaquin. I mean, I have an incredible relationship with him. We have a lot of trust in each other. But yeah. he, he would do insane things in the best sense. Yeah. Totally willing to break it open. Yeah. And okay. take risks. Well, that's great. Now, these do do any does anyone offer you like a big movie? Yeah. They do. Yeah. But like what? What have you turned down? James. What have I turned down in my life? Um well, here's one. Uh, 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 I, it's weird. I I'm, I'm uncomfortable talking about this because then some directors do it and they make a big success out of it. But yeah, that's what, okay, that's well, why the I'm first, you. well, okay, the first time I, I turned down a movie called Devil's Own with Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford, which Alan Pakula wound up doing. Oh, um, and was I that like his last movie, yeah. And mm -hmm. there was no script to it, and I was just worried that I would screw it up, which yeah. I'm sure I would have. Pakula actually made something out of it, I thought. Yeah, um, you like that guy. Pakula? Great, right? I think he's made at least three tremendous movies. President's I think, Men, I Parallax think, View. And, all, and Clute, I think, is a 
Pretty Ooh. brilliant movie. Oh, man, that movie. Yeah, it's a brilliant movie. That Jane Fonda. Incredible. What? Towards the end of that movie Jesus. when she's dissembling, it's one of the greatest things ever. And just like just like Donald Sutherland lumbering at the table. Just amazing. Ooh. And that the love story, the unlikely love story between Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda is an incredible film. It, it really very is. Very moving, actually. Yeah, I watched it recently. It's amazing. Did it hold up for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I find it very moving film. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. This one. I love Roy Scheider as the pimp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very Roy Scheider is always sleazy. Like, it's like Roy Scheider, Marathon Man. Is this, I love know. him. He's always good. Yeah. Even, even in that, that Grisham movie, uh, The Firm, that, that, with the Coppola. Uh, yeah, you know, you're talking about Rainmaker. The Rainmaker, yeah. Where he plays the corporate it's executive. Great. It's great. He's it's like a great. lizard. That's right, the Rainmaker, which is really cool. Like, those weird later Coppola movies where, I don't know, he was like, you know, a gun for hire, heavily well, medicated. Well, as he says, to pay back, uh, he says to pay back Chase Bank. Yeah. But, I mean, but it's a Coppola movie. Of course. That one is. Of course it is. I don't He's... know if the Rain, the what was the one with James Caan? Uh, oh, the Rain uh, People? No, no, no. The Cemetery one. Oh, you're talking about, oh, G Gardens of Stone, you Gardens mean. of Stone. Yeah. How was that? I can't remember. Well, I remember liking it, but I haven't seen it in 35 huh. years, I've got to confess. All right, so you were offered Devil's Own. Yeah, and... you want to hear all these things, don't you? Well, uh, I, I want Goodwill wanna... Hunting was one. Oh, good I call thought, on I that. thought he yeah. did a... I mean, I mean, that was a huge hit. What do you mean? <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, you, exactly. You turned was, that down. Yeah, of course, I'm an idiot. <laughs> and I didn't... Because, well, I'd never even heard of Matt Damon or Ben Affleck. You know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. What year was that? Where were you working on? Jesus, what was that? 1997 or something? Oh, 98? so right after Little Odessa. That was yeah, like and you, I, you were getting pitched. I, yeah, I was getting pitched stuff. And then um, re recently there's been some stuff. But I don't know. It's like... I'm not sure. It's not because I'm like you know, pompous about it or I think I'm too good for the material. Quite the opposite. Usually I think it's because I won't do a good job doing mm. what they want me to do with it. You know, I'm, I have a, I like doing action sequences, but there's a panache and a quicksilver skill yeah. that they want. Yeah. And but that, you, I don't you have that hire courage. a guy. What do you mean I hire a guy? What do you mean? Oh, you mean second unit guy? Wait, second unit guy, a DP, and you, okay. like, you, know, and, you know, and then you just need the confidence to go like, let's get the cars going. Okay. Well, you know what? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I feel like cinema is different than that, but I, that's a good method to, you know, get the whole cr the whole team around you and then you just sit there and you have like a night, when's lunch? You know, I don't know. <laughs> no, but no, you say when's like, lunch? you know, like, you know, I've never done this before. Right. Have you? Right. So you you're hired. Yourself. I see. <laughs> I see. All right. Well, I'll have to learn from that. By the way, if they, if Batman is... Batman's uh, cool, right? Batman's like a real person, at least. I don't know. I haven't, I, I haven't seen one in a while. You haven't seen a while? You, it's been a while since you've seen I, I like Tim Burton's second Batman. I think it's a really good movie. I think Michelle Pfeiffer's incredible in it. She's always incredible. Yes, she is. She's a great actress. But I'm she's saying in that movie, like, I'm saying in that movie, she's great. What was that one? Was that the one with Danny DeVito? Yeah. That's the best Penguin. That's what I'm talking about. It's like about. an opera character. Well, that's what I'm talking Rrr! about. Yeah. Right. So you can do something great. And he did it. Are you pitching for, uh, you want to do a comic book movie? No, I, well, do I want to? No, I was saying if they offered me one, would I contemplate? And that, that's the one I probably would Batman. do. Because he's a so. person. He's a real person. He's, yeah. he's not like a talking fox or something or whatever. No, no, I, don't I get know. it. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, or a superpower. Yeah, he doesn't, like, superpower. he doesn't like turn into a wrench. You know? Yeah, who is that? Michael Keaton in the second one? Who is yeah. That? yeah, Michael Keaton he's he's did the, the first two. The best. Yeah, because he has the anguish. You feel him. But the eyes, man. Yeah, he's you know, He really kind of like physicalized it like nobody else. By the way, he's sort of a genius. Totally. Yeah. So- you would do you would do a, a a big movie if it yeah I mean why not I don't know it's a great yeah, it's a great tapestry to work in I mean my movie costs five cents right which is good by the way because you limit the risk and nobody gets mad at you when it makes four dollars so okay so you're you're um, 
one of the incentives mm-hmm. for your particular oeuvre, yeah. which are you know James Gray movies, oh, it, God. is uh, sh- wait, just wait. Okay. Is that you know like like can I can I make it cheaply and 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 maybe you know uh, you know I won't fuck it up. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's absolutely true. <laughs> Look, it's a, it's a very risky proposition making a film, you know, yeah, and you're right. always exposing yourself and you're right. going to But look you ridiculous. feel confident now? No. Confident? Ever? No. We got, I mean- Well, I had huge confidence, yes, in 1993. Yeah. And then March 5th, 1994 <laughs> happened. Which is what they- what Which is that? when I went to see the assembly of Little Odessa and it was the worst thing I ever saw in my life. I remember I was shooting that movie yeah. and I was like, I am <sighs> the greatest director yeah. in the English- language yes and i was like throwing crumbs on the water and back was sprouting beautiful lilies uh-huh. i had vanessa redgrave and i had maximilian shell and oh my god yeah. how good can i get yeah i am so good yeah and then you realize that it's not the movie that context is a bitch yeah and all of a sudden the movie didn't work and i thought oh my god what do i do and i found myself having to save the film and my i'm not kidding you my confidence has never fully returned hmm 1994 but you may, but I mean, I would have to assume that with Lost City of Z and Ad Astra, you know, you you definitely that required confidence, both of them. I think it re- required a kind of insanity. I I don't I I think that that can that can double his confidence. Yeah, I, I suppose if so. If you hold on to it, but yeah, but I with the well to put to your point, I remember thinking I have a team behind me that can help. Mm. I think Z was more insane mm-hmm. because the the aspect of like I'm going to go down to the jungle. <laughs> And I'm gonna do great. That's moron, <laughs> insane. Like it's, it's, it's a freaking move. Like with his uh, remake of what? Oh, was Sorcerer. It? Yeah, I love Sorcerer. By it's the, the best. way, I think Sorcerer's an amazing movie. Yeah, it's great. Uh, that's Scheider too. Yeah, that's Roy Scheider, yeah. and and it, it, casting like you know real gangsters in the movie it was madness back then. By the way, two major studios, twenty three million dollars in nineteen seventy seven. Yeah. That's like spending like two hundred and fifty million dollars today. It just it, it, but that, I think it was in you. I think you were like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do sorcerer. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to wear a bee suit, and I'm going <laughs> to deal with bugs. But he had a hard time too. I mean, he was uh, that. But he was. But he was very competitive with Coppola. You know. Yeah. And that's why they. He went off to do sorcerer. Coppola went off to do Apocalypse Now. Yeah. And did the jungle thing. There's a lot and of swinging dicks around. A lot of dick fights back then. Because yes. there was like there was only four or five of them. That's you know right. I mean? So I guess what I was getting at is that. You know, I see, like we were talking about questions of fascism. We're talking about you know, making movies. You make you make the films you want to make. Yes, absolutely. And there's there's a tremendous range and difference in all of them. You know who your heroes are. You yep. know, it seems like you know it, tonally, and you, you know you, what you want to achieve and where you want to go. What you're exploring, it's taken you however long it's taken you, like twenty five years. Yeah. To 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 do a an honest movie about your family. Yes, and well, your upbringing. Yeah, but that was because I went to the jungle and I went to space and I just about had it. No, and I get I, it. I get know, it. But also, that, but also, you you also said well, well, but you also said that there was no way to make that movie younger because you didn't have any hindsight. No, that's all true too. But I, I think it was a lot of it was driven also, frankly, by seeing a, a country that was in deep trouble. I mean, there's here. Yeah, I think there's a lot of real. We have some real problems. Dude, it's it's fucking. I I I've applied for permanent residency in Canada. No, I understand that. Uh, I, I believe me. I I I think that um, there are some things. You know, it's like I know we say original sin, slavery, uh, and it even goes back further. You know, Adolf Hitler thought we were an excellent role model. 
You know, he, he loved oh, what yeah, we did with the watching, indigenous peoples. You were watching that Ken Burns? Thing? It is absolutely fantastic. I can only and get through one, and I, I'm not ready to go on with it. It is so disturbing. You know, by the way, if you were talking about Long Island earlier, do you know that the head, the center of the Nazi party in the United States was in Yaphank, Long Island in the 30s? Yeah. And you see photos of this stuff, and it's like these rallies that look like something right out of Berlin, yeah. 1934. It's disgusting. Yeah, yeah. And we, we had it in us. Yeah. Well, We had uh, eugenics in us. Of course. And they... they and and what became the Republican Party has been pushing back on you know New Deal socialism and Jews for a long time. Uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. There this was a concerted effort. I guess Lewis Powell and the, and the, the Supreme Court was a well, Powell Manifesto. That, but that, that was a capitalism thing. This whole idea to create Chamber these, of Commerce. Exactly. Yeah. And to try and undo that New Deal stuff. And now they're doing it. And they're going to do it. Yeah, it's taken a long time. And, yeah. but, but, but they're also shifting the culture entirely away from uh, what, what I would say, you know, New York Jewish intellectual influence and, and also diversity now. Yeah. Uh, they're just trying to shift the culture away from it by legislating, you know, not teaching uh, the history oh, of black Americans. An absolute outrage. And also like by belittling, you know, uh, marginalized communities of all kinds to, to do this kind of... Um, uh, you know, to take over the culture and simplify it. Now, here's my point: is that you know, in telling the kind of stories you tell that are provocative and and uh, uh, intimate, that I believe on some level that you know what's become mainstream entertainment. With uh, um, now, I'm, I'm talking like you uh, in terms of the <laughs> accent. Like with the Marvel Universe and whatnot, that, right. that it feeds a certain simplicity. Now, I'm not going to say that they're aiding I, fascism. I, I completely agree with you 100%. If you give somebody a McDonald's hamburger to eat every day, and you say, here's another Big Mac, and here's another Big Mac, and here's a Big Mac, and then I give you halibut sushi, your reaction is not, oh, the halibut sushi is great. Your reaction yeah. is, what the hell is this? Uh. The whole system has been primed yeah. to make sure that you accept only a superhero movie. Yeah. So the audience doesn't know what the fuck to make of another kind of movie. Like, if, For example, if you said to a college student today, dude, you're a sellout, would they even know what the hell you were trying to say? They'd say, well, that means there are no tickets left. They don't, I don't think they even know what a sellout well, well, means. They, they, but the, but that, that, the language around that has shifted, even with my peers, and I'm sure with your peers as well, is that you, you know the, the language of branding yep. and, and the, the, the language of content, and then you know once you start saying things like authenticity, yep. that the, it, it's all become the language of capitalism. Uh, uh, totally. So there is no sellout anymore That's, if you can live with it. It's absolutely. Look, th there, there is no question... But that when you tell 58-year-olds, you know, I, 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 it's okay to, to think Chewbacca is amazing. Now, I, I have nothing against Star Wars. It's fantastic, yeah, as sure. we talked about. Yeah. I, I think Empire Strikes Back is a masterpiece. Yeah. But I, that's like for like 12-year-olds and 11-year-olds. Yeah. 50-year-olds, we, we, we should be watching Hal Ashby. We shouldn't be watching, you know... Chewbacca, really. But, but do you, okay, and I agree with you, you're, but, but you're saying that we should be watching the legacy of Hal Ashby. I mean, we can't the, be the equivalent of The equivalent of Hal right, Ashby. Right, right, right. We can't mean, be complete nostalgists. No, no, I mean, and, what I uh, mean is if they were an equivalent sure. of Hal Ashby, but the system doesn't provide it anymore. The, it does, but not in a mainstream way. Not in a mainstream way, okay. right. Like the studios, they used to say, here is, uh, I mean, many filmmakers have talked about this lately, sure. but it's like, you had the B pictures. You had Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers, by the way. You had that. You oh, had that hundreds for kids. Of them, hundreds of yeah, B pictures. Yeah, they churned them yeah, out. Yeah. You would go to a Saturday yeah. morning, you'd yeah. see them both. But then... They also had, you know, William Wyler would make the letter or something, yeah. you know, and you had a large uh, array of pictures. And then particularly in the 90s, you had all these independent movies 
that uh, some of which I have to say were made by Harvey Weinstein, and you which came were very different. Yeah. yeah, I did. And 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 guess what? That is over. That is gone. The taste for it is gone. Now, can it come back? Maybe. But part of that is the capitalist power, the, the power that they have to limit the marketplace where only like a certain kind of movie gets made. To, to see in movie theaters. It seems That's to right. me that like, you know, like there's a lot of shit made, dude. And, and a lot of it, like I would, I couldn't be a director because I can't put you know, three years of my fucking life into something and have it maybe stream somewhere. I no, mean, that is that's my very, very hard. Mind. That is, you're uh, 100% right on that. It's because you have to give yourself to it. It's right. an anguish thing. Right. You know, it's like, it, it's like it takes years and hundreds of people and then all of a sudden, boom, it's on content, right? Yeah. And it's somewhere on a website or an app or right. something. Streaming and somewhere, yeah. Streaming somewhere. But and, the thing is, it's like, I think that, that the, the content that we're, or the movies, the pictures that we're talking about are, are being made. It's just hard to find them. There's no press behind them. You know, they don't, they, they, they fall through the cracks. A hundred percent. And it's not, it, well, this is the shift I'm talking about is that the culture used to be intellectual, artistic culture. You was driven by this stuff yeah i completely agree and that's gone you know all of that stuff all the conversations around that stuff you know even the people who used to be on talk shows it's it's all changed you're so right i'm i i have this weird obsession with youtube where i'll go down a wormhole and i watch a bunch of norman mailer and gore vidal having like a yeah. debate yeah. on a nighttime a very highly rated talk show right yeah and you're like, wait, what? The level yeah. of discourse is through the roof. James Baldwin and and mm -hmm. William F. Buckley having a debate at Oxford, and that's like on TV. What are you? Do? What? What? That, that's, that, that's gone. The intellectual value. But the is weird good. thing is, sadly, it's like I, I I believe that it's gone as a marker of culture, but I don't think it's gone. I just think that the priorities have shifted, which is even worse. Is that like you know? No, it's all still here. No, you're, I, mean, I agree with you on that. Of course, what I mean, gone is we don't. It, it's it's not in the we same. We don't put a premium on it's it. It's not the premium. It's not a, not a kind of mainstream. It's been a bit marginalized. Is that's really right. what I yeah, mean. Yeah. Well, mainstream, right? You know, what is mainstream is like I don't even understand. I don't know. I've never watched. A Kardashian do anything. No, I haven't. You know, and, and occasionally, like, I see clickbait, you know, all of a sudden, like, look, I like Kanye's first few records, but yeah. now he's, like, trying to lead some sort of strange, you know, African-American anti-Semitic leadership conference. I don't understand that. Do you? Yes. The anti-Semitism Yes. It's, I, what is that about? I don't get. I don't it was understand. unleashed in 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 I think in that community through churches, through Farrakhan, through, uh, you know, feeling that... Um, uh, that somehow you know Jews were in control of things. It's it's a popular conspiracy in that culture. It has been for a long time. Something went bad after the '60s, and you know it has something to do with the the music business and and slumlords. And I I don't know how it all happened, but they've locked onto that particular the Jews run everything conspiracy. It's the most upsetting thing ever. I, I, what you're saying to me, I mean, Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, right? Two out of the three were Jews. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can hang on to that, It's, but it's, it's, I think it's a mythology now to some people and that, that whatever, you know, that there is no alliance anymore. Yeah. No, I, I, I completely understand. I mean, that shifted into, I think it shifted into the music business and out of the, uh, the conversation about civil rights and that. And that... E e but it's, this is when I said to you, I said I was a lefty, but from the 60s, 70s, no, I know, this I know. is exactly it, what it, I was talking about. Right, We're, but it's dated. Yeah, it is. I am. And, you know, there, there's an evolving progressiveness that, you, you know, we have to educate ourselves about around gender and race. That's true. Uh, that's become more sophisticated and, and more specific, in, in, you know, and, and we're old. That's true, but I will tell you this. I, I look at my children who are very well educated in these matters, better than I am. Sure. 
at the same time, they seem to have no awareness of, understanding of, have not really been educated about the influence of capitalism and the market on a lot of these factors. In other words, there has been to, a kind to, of separation. And but you I have, have to, to seek f- that out. How I, the fuck did you get educated on it? It's like, you know. Um, it, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but that you got because someone goes, Do you ever read that book? Yeah. And you're like, Holy shit. Yeah. Is this true? Yeah. And you're like, Holy shit, it is true. You know, you got to have those brain, you know, those mind blowing books that lay that shit out. Yep. You, you know, and then you have to, you know, integrate that train of thought or that that type of perception into your the way you see the world. It, it takes one, usually it takes one person, a teacher usually who, sure. with whom you really connect. I'm trying to think of the book that kind of blew my mind open about the nefariousness of, of, of how capitalism works. Well, I, I wasn't a kid. No, I mean either. I was probably mid twenties. Yeah. It, it was, it was. I can tell you, for me, it was this writer, Louis Althusser, who was went crazy, actually, and, and, and I think stabbed his wife or strangled her, I can't remember which. But he, he wrote this thing about the what he called the ISA, the Ideological State Apparatus. Mm. And that, I remember reading that and kind of going, huh, that's amazing. Now, I can't really talk about this, because if I do, you know, it's like people think, you know, you're a pompous ass, you know, yeah. you'd say Althusser at a dinner party, and they yeah. were bludgeon you to death yeah but it definitely opened my mind into a new way of viewing capitalism sure. the uh, the yeah. power of that the ideological power of that yeah it's, you ever uh, watch those adam curtis movies oh yeah of course right. fantastic <laughs> why are you laughing he's the amazing he's no because i love him yeah no, like I'm i have ocd quality I about that yeah it's like i can't i can't get enough of that shit oh it's crazy man I know, but this is bad because you know this what? is not this is not going to cheer you up in what life. What do you mean? You know? I, I need. What are you some looking kind of, to be cheered up? A little bit. Well, what do you do? I don't really do anything. I listen to music. That cheers me up a little bit. I listen to music sometimes. Uh, you know, I cook. You know, I fucking talk to my cats. Cooking I'm is good. I'm in comedy by the way. clubs every fucking night of my life. I've been doing comedy all my life. Does that work? Sometimes. You know, I I I used to see a particular comedian who's very famous, whose name I won't mention on this. Yeah. And he would be sitting at the Chateau Marmont every day, and I would go there to write, and he'd always be there, and he always looked much more miserable than anyone else in the room. Uh-huh. He looked the most miserable guy in the world, and then you would see his persona would be Mr. Happy Guy. Sure. Yeah. So I always think the comedians in the private yeah, are like extremely anguished. Is that not true? Well, I think that's a stereotype. But I mean, sure. I mean, sad, angry, but I can't, I, you can't generalize it. You know, there's been an, an infusion right. into the younger stand-up. So the next generation of people, they don't, Are take they happier? It ser- don't take it as seriously. Well, a lot of them come out of sketch now. They know how to work with other people. Those of us who got into it because we were complete social morons <laughs> and, you know, completely uncomfortable and, you know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's a different, different <laughs> generation, you know? Yeah, but I, I go watch some I, Rodney Dangerfield. They'll help you out. Oh yeah, he's 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 he he seems like he would have been a very cheerful fellow in life. Miserable. Oh my God, yes. You but can the, you can see it. But I feel like he's. It's like you know, the more I sort of like as Keith Richards continues living, and I, I I my love for him grows, and I go back to it. Like you know, Rodney is one of these unsung heroes, a really truly uh, unique guy. Well, he's, he was like and, one of the greats. Yeah, but I I don't know that he gets the props he gets. You know, really? he gets it from certain people. But I, I, I think in the big picture, he does—he actually does not get the respect he deserves. Rodney, Rodney, I feel like you mentioned you, his no respect, name. He no respect a, at all. You, he's I mean, like you a god, know. of sure. course. Yeah, but maybe it's because I'm old. And I just sometimes you watch him on Carson when he's bombing. He's just, it's just so. It's a, you got the right mic on, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know he's brilliant. He's brilliant, of course. But I also love the, the sort of Borscht Belt thing. 
Sure. I yeah, I mean, well, guys. of course we do. I mean, how? I mean, that's how I got into it. You know, Buddy Hackett. So like Buddy Jackie Vernon, I would watch. Yeah, but you know? by the way, Buddy Hackett. That's yeah. like I was watching the Music Man with my kids, and yeah. Buddy Hackett is like actually a song and dance man in that. Yeah, with his little that's weird, a little weird, goofy mush mouth, face. Shapoopy, Yeah, 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 oh yeah, yeah. The love buggies and the love bug. Yes. Well, he is Buddy Hackett after all. Yeah. He's be, yeah, but I used to think he was funny. Anyway, yeah, Rickles and all those guys. We well, grew up with that shit. Rickles, know? whom I met, by yeah. the way, I'm happy to say, uh, immediately took a liking to me, which meant he was, of course, instantly insulting over and over and over again. Yeah. And my wife thought that was the greatest thing she'd ever sure, heard. Of course. Right. Why wouldn't it? Yeah. I got a great book. Have you, have you seen that book of photographs of the hotels now? Oh, of the, in the Catskills, yeah, you mean? Yeah. It's the most haunting things in the world, like Grossinger's yeah, and the Congo. Oh, my you've God. you book? Yeah, they're like modern ruins. Yeah, it's crazy. It's amazing. It's like, the, the, I want to go no see one, it. No one's like, no one's going to, there's still lounge chairs and shit. Isn't there's that a, amazing? Yeah, there's a bowling ball. You know, it's like, I no want to go there. Stuff. I don't know if it's still like that. You can I, go there. Maybe that'll bring you joy. Yeah, well, I, I like I like modern ruins. <laughs> yeah. Good talking to you, man. Great talking to you. Thanks for, thanks for doing it. I, I, I hope your wife enjoys it. I'm sure she will. Armageddon Time is now playing in theaters and available to rent on video on demand. That was uh, James Gray. Enjoy that guy. We've been texting. We've been texting each other pictures of food we cook. So, uh, okay, hang out a minute, you guys. Just hang out. Okay, folks, my recommendation from our archives today is episode 581 with Mick Foley. Mick Foley is a Hall of Fame professional wrestler as well as an author, an actor, and he's also someone I got to know while doing my old radio show, Morning Sedition. Well, I'm just, I, you know, I, it's great to see you. I, I mean, despite whatever uh, I may not know about <laughs> wrestling, we always seem to have a fairly uh, rich conversation. Oh, we do. I think because when I met you, it was on the Air America show, yeah, yeah. and at that time, I knew quite, you know, I knew quite quite a bit didn't we do a bit we did a lot of bits we yeah. didn't we do that one where uh where we had brendan play the conservative <laughs> yeah. right and he won this he was gonna fight wrestle me or something and then we brought you in and we did that whole script on the air and then we, we cut the mics for years no people thought it was real uh, really get, we, yeah we would get this mail sort of like hey look you know they have a right to talk to i don't agree with them but i think what you did to that guy <laughs> that's right <laughs> And I remember like just how talented the writers were on that oh, yeah, show. Blast, you know, dude. when I came in and co-hosted for a week with you, you know, I was like, you know, five a.m. and yeah. here's the production meeting. These yeah, are just great. You can listen to that episode for free on all podcast platforms. It's episode five eighty one with Mick Foley, and you'll want to check it out if you have a full Marin subscription because next week we're going to post some bonus content that involved Mick with a wrestling angle on the radio. That was a uh, some back in the day shit there. Yeah. We did a wrestling piece, radio wrestling piece. Um, sold out shows tomorrow in Asheville, North Carolina. Still some seats left for my shows on Saturday at the James K. Polk Center in Nashville, Tennessee. And very few seats left for my HBO special taping at Town Hall in New York City on Thursday, December 8th. Maybe a couple. Guitar time.
Boomer lives. Monkey, LaFonda, cat angels everywhere. Yeah, 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 yeah.